Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm very glad to see you and I'm glad you can join us to video this discussion uh, with my wonderful co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? My fellow Drew. A uh, horror show. Uh, thank you, Darren. Um, I hope I'm using that right. Um, <laughs> how are you? How are you doing? I, I'm I'm good. I'm good. I think we have a real horror show of a podcast lined up for you this evening, actually. Isn't it um, always? <laughs> it, it, it always is um, and we'll probably come back to, to explain that in a moment but yes as as astute listeners may have picked up both from the title of the podcast they're listening to and from the slang we used to open it we are discussing Stanley Kubrick's 1972 A Clockwork Orange and we have a fantastic guest joining us the one, one, one of our droogs <laughs> one of our droogs how are you fellow droog I'm good fellow droogies how are you oh, oh my little brothers <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just want to apologize to the listeners for like how lame we must sound. Yeah, we we, we, we are so cool when, and hip and when, with it. When talking about this really kind of um, you know um, challenging movie, <laughs> first thing we do is how can we fit in some song? Appropriating all of the fun language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I do I do love, by the way, that like one of the, the reasons that the um, Burgess, the kind of guy who wrote the novel, came up with this kind of slang. Is it Natsbad? Natsash, yeah. Natsash is yeah. what they call it. Which obviously, yeah, uh, which will come, we'll come into like how it's taken from like Russian and various other sources as well. But one of the reasons why he did it was to prevent his book about a teenage protagonist from being dated or seeming like it was written by a middle-aged man. Because he did, you know, using cool slang is very difficult for middle-aged men. So he just figured he'd make it up, and I think that we're just myself and Andrew are just kind of proving that point right here on this yeah, podcast. I think it was a really wicked decision. <laughs> <laughs> it was like an ace uh, uh, I, writer. I, I th- thought it was really deadly myself. But yes, so we are discussing a Clockwork Orange, and we're discussing it because Efa chose it. Because uh, if listeners will remember, Efa joined us for three of our Scorsese season episodes last year, um, and it was a remarkable occurrence because I think Scorsese is one of Efa's favorite filmmakers. But as I recall, we somehow ended up on two of those three podcasts talking about two movies that I think Aoife wasn't especially fond of, um, which was kind of an interesting experience. So we asked uh, we asked her if she'd like to come back and if there was a movie on the list that she'd like to talk about. And we had a bit of a back and forth and she settled on A Clockwork Orange. So just very briefly, Aoife, what is it about A Clockwork Orange that kind of made you choose it? Um, I think it's a... <sighs> It's a film that people are aware of, even if they haven't seen it. I mean, that they're aware of sort of the iconic imagery. I think um, it's a film that has stood the test of time. Um, it's one of Kubrick's probably, it's probably his most controversial film. Um, it's also, I think it's also, it can be a difficult film. It's a difficult film to love, but there's a lot in it to love. I think it's... Um, I, I think it's it's a, it's a remarkable piece of work, and I think that the controversy that surrounded it at the time of its release, with Kubrick withdrawing it from um, from screenings in the UK and also Ireland, therefore, um, has given it sort of this sort of cult status. I think, and certainly when when I was um, a teenager, it was um, the one film everybody sort of wanted to see, but but couldn't. Or you know, that's just sort of dodgy sort of VHS versions going around at the time, and I think all of that makes it you know makes it stick in my mind a lot. You know, I've seen it multiple times um, since it was released, and um, every time I watch it, it just I think it does something different each time. I think you know, um, I think it, it's it's blackly funny, but it's also can be quite disturbing, and it's um, it's violent and um, 
I think that the music is remarkable. I think the performances are OTT, but also remarkable as well. So I think there's a lot going on. I think there's a lot to discuss about this film. Uh, and actually, to, to just we'll probably talk about like the circumstances of it being withdrawn from circulation kind of later on when we get into the Explorer Zone. But there was, as you pointed out, like The Exorcist, a time when this movie was not readily available in the UK. And I'm assuming also Ireland um, as a subsidiary market for Warner Brothers. So did you see it? You mentioned you kind of suggested you didn't see it in cinemas when you were a teenager that it was hard to come by. Did you get one of those M- grainy multi-region VHS? <laughs> I was about to say, did you get one of those like grainy VHS? Uh, kind of like with the lines going up and down and the commercials yeah. from US TV airings. Did you see it before it was re-released here? I did. Yeah, I saw. I saw it on a dodgy VHS copy. I, I don't remember who won the copy, but I think it, we, it was it was at some some guy's house party. We went back to one night after after um so several. Um, rounds of alcohol, shall we say, and um, he threw it on. But I, the, the, the one I remember most is that I actually bought a copy of it myself on my way through Sheephall Airport in Amsterdam. Um, I, I picked it up there and I made sure that if it was in English, like it wasn't it wasn't in Dutch, it wasn't dubbed in Dutch, so it was in English with, it was in English with Dutch subtitles. So I had a, an actual proper, you know, VHS copy of it for three years. And then, then got it on DVD and Blu-ray when it came out. I kind of love the idea that like you went to Amsterdam and the kind of the stuff that you brought back with you, the kind of like the the illicit material. Yeah, everything's legal there. You you, <laughs> yeah. you, you can have this uh, VHS of, of I hear they just sell it in cafes. Yeah, yeah. Just like, uh, little cafes yeah, yeah. There's guys on street corners pushing it at you. Here, one of my Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. You know. So. <laughs> Uh, but like so so you mentioned kind of like the fact that you you watch it multiple times and each time you get something different out of it but like the first time you saw it was it kind of a film that you fell in love with the first time or was it a difficult film you had to come around to um i think it's a film you have to come around to i mean i was more aware of it before i saw it if you know what i mean like you know those posters were going around so it's the certain images from the film like the 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 scene where they beat up the tramp there's a there's a sort of a poster going around with um you know that wonderful lighting and yeah. The shadows of the of Alex and his drugs, um, in that sort of tunnel, that urban tunnel, um. But also, I had read the book before I saw the film, so um, and I found the book when I when I first started reading the book, I found it hard to get to grips with the language because it uses this you know this this slang, Russian English uh, teenage slang in it, and it took me a while to get to grips with that. But once I got, once I got to grips with the language. And I could understand what the words meant just by the context. Um, the book totally gripped me, you know, and I was just just fascinated. I was a little bit obsessed with 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 the book, and then with consequently with the film. Because there's a few different editions of the book. Mm, I think yeah. I read two versions of it. Yeah. One of them, I think, had a glossary. One didn't. One of them had a different yes. ending. Yes, yes, it did. Well, we'll probably yeah. get to that yes. in the spoiler zone, but the. This is one of the more controversial aspects of the the adaptation mm. is that the British, ironically, despite the fact that Kubrick was like living in Britain and filming in Britain and working with British actors um, on this movie and on the production of this movie. And I think he had actually been shooting um, 2001 in Britain when he was given a copy of the book. But the British version of the book contains an additional closing chapter from Burgess, which was cut from the American version. And we'll talk maybe about what that contained in the spoiler zone. But one of Burgess's like... 
again, Burgess's attitude towards the film and the novel has shifted shifted dramatically over time. I say have as if it's still changing even now. And it is actually because like we're still finding notes from him. Um, like I love that when I did a Google search for Anthony Burgess, who died in, I think, 1993, it's like new Burgess manuscript discovered, new notes, new script. And it's like <laughs> somebody somebody <laughs> needs to like do a proper clean out of that man's house just once and all and just roll up your sleeves and get it done. But one of the one of the issues that he had with the film was that Kubrick basically took the American version, which is one that omits his closing chapter of the book. And we'll maybe talk about that kind of in the spoiler zone. But yeah, Andrew's right. This is we talk about like cases where you get movies with different versions and you need to be very careful which version you you kind of watch. Yeah, you need to be quite careful which version of A Clockwork Orange you read if you're going to. Did you read both versions, actually? And do you have a preference? No, um, I think I've only read the American version. So I think um, okay. the book I had had the glossary at the back. Um, so I was sort of stopping every every page to look up words until eventually it just clicked <laughs> in me just to, you know, to and I, I understood the words by their context. But as far as I can remember, the, the version I read was the, um, the US version. It didn't have that extra chapter that we, we discussed okay. later. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Um, I do love, by the way, that we're talking about this. Like, this reminds me of when we were talking about Dune, reading Frank Herbert's Dune with the glossary at the back of it. Um, all right, then. I think, uh, what about yourself, Andrew, actually? Do you remember the first time you saw Clockwork Orange? Um, kind of. I, I, I remember it being, I think, in my teens and discovering kind of, I guess, various Kubrick movies. Like, they'd obviously... Um, Obviously, falling asleep during 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey. As, as, as you did as when I we recorded it. it. Yeah, as, as, did. as you did when I was recording it. I, I still <laughs> I still have yet to see that movie. Uh, despite recording a podcast but on it. Like, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like, like something that I'm taking very seriously. I don't know what it is. But 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 um, enjoying the movies of... Um, oh, and, and I had a huge thing for, um, for Dr. Strangelove. As well at the time that that was that was the big one for me that I was kind of seeking out because I loved Peter Sellers. So the, the, this 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 was another one in the kind of um, Kubrick canon that I that I that, that I was seeking. But it was also the book. I think it was reading the, the book. Did you read reading, the book beforehand? Like, I think I might have. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know. I know. It would have been around the same time. Um, I remember there being like an old. Um, edition of it, like a kind of an orange, kind of a stylized co- sort of um, uh, cover yeah. um, to it. And yeah, getting them from like a secondhand bookshop, but then I think losing it and getting another one and being <laughs> like, hold on, this is different. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, see, yeah. you kids, you kids, you kids out there listening, listening to this. Um, back in the day when when we we couldn't actually get stuff when there was no internet, like we got our vicarious thrills by reading the novels that these films were based on. <laughs> that, these films we were that I'd watch. Like I remember my dad um taking the Godfather book off me, said it's not suitable for you. Like I think I was about twelve or thirteen, so I immediately went out the next day and bought another copy in a secondhand shop. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> Those were the days before the internet. To be fair, the Godfather book is quite unsuitable for reasons that have nothing to do with like the age of the person (laughs) reading. I would argue. Um, what's all that stuff about Sonny? Yeah. <laughs> um, and why isn't that in the movie? Is the question. Yeah. Um, it's implied. Um, but the, the um, yeah, it's a funny thing. I think we've spoken about it a lot on the podcast about 
um, experiencing uh, movies that you that you are too young to watch yeah. by reading books because parents are like. Yeah, books of are good. You can read a book. They're literary. Look, yeah. he's, show, he's showing an interest. I think that's how I like. Yeah. My parents wouldn't let me watch American uh, Psycho, but they me got me too. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. I, I read. I think I read the book before I ever saw the movie. Yeah, they got me the book because reading is good for kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like. I was. I was, oh I was too young. Yeah. I was too young to get that it was satire. So I just like yeah, sat away cradling, like, cradling my and suspenders, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> talking about Huey Lewis and the news. And what, like, <laughs> Phil Collins has the best version of Cattery. Phil Collins. Oh God, yeah. But sorry, Andrew. So you kind of that's that's how you kind of came to it uh, in terms of like, no, yeah, absolutely. And and American Psycho is like a perfect example <laughs> of that as well. But also like a Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Um, I can't even remember anymore if if the book is as shocking as the movie because the movie certainly is. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of yeah, it's it 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 can be it can be a difficult watch. Yeah. Um. All right then, and yeah, for myself, I kind of I remember coming across this. It's very similar to The Exorcist, uh, where Darren was kind of numbed to horror by that point because he was like 12 years old he'd seen everything uh but no i remember like when i was a kid it was this and the exorcist were the two movies that were we called it banned even though they were not banned it was the warner brothers had not submitted the exorcist to the censor or censor office in the uk because they knew they get an x rating in the video nasty scandal so it just wasn't available and they clockwork orange had been pulled from circulation at kubrick's request and and again i kind of love this we'll talk about like warner brothers relationship with kubrick but literally as soon as he popped his cogs um they were like yep clockwork orange now available in the uk you can screen it at your local cinema it's like yeah we no longer have an obligation to this guy screen it whenever you want and i remember going to see it and i remember being slightly underwhelmed by it much like i was by the exorcist where it was like this is i could i don't see the the panic around this as as a 12 year old um now of course keep mind it was a hardened 12 year old who just read american psycho and taken everything at face value um, but it, I remember kind of like that was my kind of experience of going to see a Clockwork Orange was like it being this this must see this kind of like edgy dark like like Aoife describes the kind of thing you buy from somebody on a street corner in a brown paper bag and kind of like being kind of surprised at how polished it was how wonderfully made it was how beautiful it looked but also I mean I was kind of less shocked by it than I kind of expected to be which was interesting but sorry Andrew. No, I've just realized it it I I think this movie is what got me into Beethoven. I think it was it was it was after kind of the book and the movie. Um I then when whenever I was reading then I would just kind of listen to Beethoven. There's a, there's a weird kind of a um a thing for for maybe especially for teenagers with something like American Psycho or 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 would uh, Clockwork Orange like enjoying it too much you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind of where like these aren't good people uh, but 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 kind of on some uh perverse level like finding them kind of cool or yeah um like I, well I, th- I think it i think it is your brain basically being mush as a teenager and you not necessarily understanding that you're entitled to make your own opinions and just going hey this is a no, but there's an appeal to it. It's oh, okay. not just that, like we're told it's appealing. It's, oh, okay. I, I feel like, well, I don't know. Maybe, you know, like maybe, maybe, maybe you're right. But it just it feels like there's some there's some sort of that it 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 you know that it reaches something. Yeah. Um, well, in, I want to actually talk about that maybe later on. But 
but then before we do, before we jump in, let's jump, let's ask three questions and get to the spoiler zone. So, Aoife, to start us off with, do you think A Clockwork Orange is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, every time you ask me this, I sort of hum and haw, <laughs> because I think there's always 250, 49 better movies than this. But yes, no, I, I think it is. I think it, it deserves to be on there. I think it's, um, I mean, I, I do like a lot of Kubrick's work, um, and I do think this is one of his one of his better films. Um, I like it because it, you know, it has stood the test of time. It's it's iconic in its imagery. Like you, you see a still from A Clockwork Orange, you know it's from A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. There's absolutely no disguising the fact that it's A Clockwork Orange. And I think that, you know, um, Kubrick's use of, uh, obviously his, his cinematography, the, his use of sound, his use of music, his use of visuals, it's just beautiful. And it's a film that just sucks you in each time. Like you could, it could show up on television, although it rarely does these days, but if, if it showed up on television, you could just, you know, start watching it at any point and just, and just get sucked into the story. I mean, I, what struck me most on this rewatch was the first sort of 30 minutes or just, they just fly by, you know, yeah. I thought, okay, that's all the interesting stuff now. Now it's going to go to, <laughs> you know, what happens after that. But I, I got sucked into that, that part of the film as well, you know, so I think, yeah, it's definitely, definitely should be in the top 250. Cool. And and do you think you said it like it ranks among Kubrick's best films in, in your opinion? Like, is it in the very upper echelons? Um, so like, what's ahead of it? What's behind it? Roughly, that's a good question. Um, I always, you know, anytime somebody asks me what's my favorite Kubrick film, like I I always sort of cite. Um, I love Two Thousand and One Space Odyssey. I love The Shining. I love Barry Lyndon. I love Doctor <laughs> Doctor Strangelove. <laughs> um, just you know. Um, so it's ahead of Spartacus. I can be on. It's ahead of Spartacus. Yeah, <laughs> it's shorter than Spartacus, I think. <laughs> um, and then I, I love some of his earlier film noirs as well. You know, so there, there's there's not a lot of Kubrick stuff I don't like. I still have to revisit Eyes Wide Shut. Um, I'm a bit iffy about that one. But I think, um, yeah, I think sort of it would be in my top three Kubrick films. I think. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Um... Yeah, I'd I'd kind of be inclined to to put it on the top um two fifty uh, um just be 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 because of I guess the stature of Kubrick, but also kind of like trying to think of ranking Kubrick movies, I would I would find very difficult. I'd find it very difficult to say like that this is worse <laughs> than better the, yeah than some of the than some yeah. of the movies we were kind of li- li- um, listing there. Kind of that that I and 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 if it's difficult to do that, then like which yeah. ones would you get rid of if you were? Yeah. So yeah, no, I I, I would I would kind of agree. I, w- I would agree with having on the two fifty. I would kind of hedge my bets here. Um, and this is where Darren kind of tips his hand, where I say, where I say that I. You're one of those heads. Yeah, I'm on Reddit right now. I'm, I'm investing in GameStop and AMC right now. You're getting murdered <laughs> on GameStop. GameStop. Yeah. Um, Robin Hood. Yeah, the key is to know when to sell, baby. When to sell. This stuff, I get on the ground floor. Diamond hands, yeah. Darren. Get, get into this elevator because it's only going up. But yeah, no, Um, get on the ground floor. <laughs> yeah. But yes, it's the great glass elevator. But no, this is yeah, kind of where I tip my hand, where I am, I'm not a huge fan of A Clockwork Orange, and I wonder how much of that colors my... um answer to this question 
I agree entirely with what Aoife says. This is a gorgeous film. This is like an iconic film. This is a film that is one of the most striking visual pieces of work I have ever seen. And it still stays with me. And I still think of it a lot. And it's one of those, again, like looking at Kubrick's filmography, this is possibly outside of like that sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey perhaps his most referenced or most parodied or most mimetic or most iconic work. Um, like this is, this is kind of like, it's not just a particular scene, like the writing of the bomb in, in Dr. Strangelove or the ax murders in the shining or anything with Jack Nichols in the shining, to be frank, this is an entire movie where the look and feel and texture of it is something that you can just put on screen and people will go, that's a clockwork orange, which is striking and stunning and beautiful. And I think it deserves a place. I'm less convinced of of kind of just it as a film itself. Um, in terms of I I disagree with kind of Ethan Andrew and in that I I'm not necessarily I don't think that it's one of Kubrick's best films. I think it's perhaps one of the films where Kubrick's worst impulses come out um, the strongest, where he doesn't necessarily check himself and where the the parts of Kubrick that I personally react to least or react against are at their strongest. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I'd be kind of hesitant to, to put it on there. Um, I think there is a lot of Kubrick on there, and I think if I had to make the cut, this would be one of the ones that I would cut. Um, it's interesting, because I, I guess like people probably have different reasons for liking Kubrick. Yeah. And the extent to which kind of they like him because... Of these things that... Of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 like, I think, I think a lot of the people who like Kubrick, they like him because he does things differently or because he, he tries to kind of, um, challenge himself a little bit. Or even, even like simple things like the, the, how, um, in Full Metal Jacket, the kind of like, um, sort of structure of the symmetry, kind of like yeah. The two movies, yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, again, you have symmetry here as well, as Eva pointed out. Like, it's it's a movie that has a very clear structure, and it bends back around itself like a horseshoe. Um, very. Yeah. And I don't, I don't like. I feel like it's it's kind of um, it feels like transparently indulgent, but not in a yeah. way that kind of annoys me. Yeah. Oh no, I I, I know. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm I'm fully putting my hands up and saying this is kind of like because I think we talked about we talked about um, Full Metal Jacket, where I generally. Like, I love The Shining because I think the Kubrick's outlook works beautifully for a horror movie. I think Kubrick's view of humanity makes him the perfect <laughs> horror movie director. Um, I think, like, that's the most perfect fit you've ever had. I think 2001 A Space Odyssey is gorgeous, beautiful, and it's weird, and it has this detached view of humanity that I think works with the material. And then I think we talked about this on 2001, uh, sorry, on, on Full Metal Jacket, where the rest of it's it's like, this is gorgeous. This is beautiful. This is one of the greatest filmmakers who ever lived. And it's like, I don't want to be inside his brain. Um, I'm I'm quite happy sitting out here uh, just looking at the pretty pictures. But that again, that's just me. But Aoife, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal 250? Yeah, I would. Um, and I, I, you know, I take the point about Kubrick. Like he is a very, can be a very cold and sterile filmmaker. I mean, he's obviously a master of his craft. Like he, yeah. you know, he knows where to place a camera. He he knows everything about filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and, he's, and he's got that obsessive, you know, obsessive detail that he puts into his films and into the making of his films. But like when you look at the Clockwork Orange, you know, I still find it hard to believe that this was released by a major studio, you know. Yeah. You know, there's not a studio today that would that would 
that would allow a director to make a film like that. Yeah. You know, with, with that imagery, with that, with those set designs. With that um, trust, with that content. Yeah, with that with that content. And yeah, yes, the violence probably is very tame by today's standards and it's very stylized. And the viewer is always sort of removed from that, even even the sexual violence, which I do have a problem with in this film, but even your the viewer is sort of at one removed from that. So you don't get caught up on it, which maybe is is a good thing. Um I still think it's it's a remarkable film. I think it, I think it has stood the test of time. I think the fact that, uh, as I said earlier, that you know you could look at any still from it and know it's from a Clockwork Orange, and I think yeah, it deserves it deserves that place on my two fifty for that reason. Oh yeah, no, and and actually, I think that's a very salient point about like no, no a major studio releasing this because that's again one of the nice things about Warner Brothers as a studio is that they used to see themselves and again it's it's weird saying this like as of up until about a month ago they used to see themselves as the studio that was like the director's studio they worked with the box set it's like we, we let Eastwood make whatever movie he wants we'll let Kubrick make whatever movie he wants we'll let Nolan make whatever movie he wants and then we'll just release the box set at the end and that like we mentioned there the idea of like this movie was withheld from circulation in the UK because Kubrick asked Warner Brothers to stop distributing it can you imagine a filmmaker saying to a studio, I want you to stop selling this movie in this territory because it upsets me? And the studio going, yep, that's a fair point. Like, grand, we, we were just not going to do it. Um, like, it, It's it's remarkable. I really admire that kind of relationship that he kind of had with Yeah, it, it's quite amazing. But then then um, to take the counterpoint to that, if you look at yeah, like no. Ken Russell's The Devils, um, like there is a director's cut available of that but warner brothers won't release it you know so which seems odd there's um there's a scene called it's the rape of christ scene um which has been cut out of all editions of the devils and it was found recently and it was restored and it was shown at a screening in london somewhere and um warner brothers have refused to release it they just don't want that out there you know even though you know ken russell is no longer with us you know so i think there is a counterpoint to Waterbury's being the the directors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and certainly not anymore, given the the HBO Max announcement and everything yes, that came that's after true that as well. well. To be fair, probably okay with being like Clint Eastwood's director's <laughs> studio <laughs> <laughs> when, it, when it comes to kind of like uh, Ken like, Russell, yeah, Ken yeah, Russell stuff that doesn't play in the Bible. Right? Yeah, yeah maybe it's kind of different. I uh, know, but I, I still, I still do admire the fact that, like, as as Eva pointed out, they gave Kubrick like a two million dollar budget, which was a large bullet for a budget for a British film, and just said, "Go wild, do what you want with it, as long as you deliver it on time and on budget." Um, that's fine. Um, and I, I, yeah, like they, they, there's a lot to admire about kind of like the chances that they've given um, filmmakers. Like I feel like we we like like we we speak about how much kind of um, rope um, Nolan gets given, but even like before that, with like the with the with the Wachowskis yeah. as well, like and so so many kind of examples we talk about as well when when we don't like the movies that get made. But yeah, where where this we're, is the Zack Snyder effect, where yeah, it's like exactly. for every which yeah, has yeah. for every for every speed racer, you have to release a sucker punch. That's that's the deal. That's the code. <laughs> um, but then yeah, the thing with the thing with Kubrick was so that um, he could work within a relatively yeah. small budget. He had a small crew, worked with the same people time yeah. and time again, and he was siloed and let let do his own thing because he always delivered in the end, you know, and yeah. and he had. You know, he had that sort of panache and that that sort of 
that those sort of kudos that you get, you know, as a, as a serious, the critics love them as a serious yeah. filmmaker, you know? Yeah. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would a Clockwork Orange be in your personal 250? I mean, it might. Um, the, 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 it, it, it was kind of um, watching it again. I definitely um, uh, had um, kind of issues with the with the kind of depictions of violence in it, especially the, the kind of like as Eva mentioned, the violence against women in in this really kind of um, um, stylized kind of way, is it? Yeah, it really sort of affected me. I think more than I remember being being affected um, uh, previously watching it. it was, um, but also something that Aoife said: there is so much to um, appreciate and admire in this. I think Kubrick's a great tends to make great use of of music, yeah, in his films, but also kind of imagery. Um, and like we talk about how iconic this is and, but he's, he's, he's a filmmaker who makes iconic movies. Um, I think you use the term is... echoic as well to describe like, cause iconic is just visually, but it's the sound and the images together. Like yes. when, you, when you think yeah. of Kubrick, you think of, you don't just think of the images, you think of the music cues with them as well. Like the William Tell overture, for example, in, in one sequence here, which I know I probably shouldn't have laughed at, but I couldn't help laughing at, um, because I am a twelve-year-old boy in my yeah, just speed it up sequence. Yeah, I mean, it's also a funny movie. Yeah, you know, it is, that, yeah. That, it, that is genuinely yeah. um, funny, um, and um, and that's a that's a that's an interesting. I, I like I like the kind of um, dark humor of it. Yeah, and I, I I think I think it would be it would be I think it would be less likely to 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 to. To get in there, kind of as a as a top two fifty movie, if it lacked any humor, I think it would it would be um, impossible to kind of um, it, to to want to watch <laughs> more than once. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like the, there there are scenes in there, you know, where where he holds the camera longer than than any other director would. Um, I mean, there's a couple of scenes that I'll, I'll, I'll probably talk about later, like the, um, the sort of couple of bureaucratic scenes yeah. that are very, very interesting. And he, you know, he holds on to them for so long. It's, it, it becomes funny, you know, and you just go, you know, why did he do that? And it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, not to spoil recommendations, but rewatching it now, it large portions of it reminded me of Brazil, which kind of, which surprised me, which wasn't something I picked up as a teenager, even mm. though I loved Brazil as a teenager, but going back to it as an adult, it was like, Oh yeah, I can see that now. I can see that use of the fisheye yeah. lens. See the intense close-up, the long takes, as you mentioned, the like shouting British men in a science fiction setting. Um, <laughs> There's some great shouting uh, British men. Yeah, in and it um, also reminds me of porridge, porridge at times. You know, they like you know. I, I, I expected Mr. Mr. Mackay to walk out at some stage. You know. <laughs> um, and for myself, probably not. Um, I I'm not a huge a huge fan of Glockwork Orange. I'm probably gonna let Andrew and Eva talk about it more. But it just it. It doesn't really click for me. I think as and it's really weird because as a teenager, I remember not being particularly shocked by it. Um, and coming back to it as an as an adult, I kind of rewatching it. I was like, this is, and I don't want to sound really offensive or insulting to even Andrew or anybody listening who enjoys it. But I remember thinking, this is a very teenage movie. It it seems very I mean, much. I I kind of agree with that, and it is like uh, um. I I I mean I still like it. Oh no, yeah. But I I like I definitely do associate it more with that uh, part of my life. Yeah. Um. 
But I think I mean, it's a teenage movie because Alex is a teenager, you know. That's and, fair. Yeah, that's fair. And that it's, you know, the film is mostly from his perspective. Now, yeah, to the point not, where they use the fisheye lens to like distort the view of everything outside him. Yeah. So yeah, yeah so. whether or not you um, identify with Alex or not, that's an entirely, entirely <laughs> different story. But it is. But you know, there is those that sort of vicarious thrill that this guy is just going out there doing what he bloody wants to do. You know that he's just. <laughs> <laughs> he's sort of he's sort of anarchic and he just does his own thing you know and i worry that darren's falling into the cliche 250 position where andrew somehow managed to talk me into saying that nurse hatchet was the real hero of a of uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah. <laughs> Dar- darren doesn't identify with this story of a teenager because he was never a teenager. i was i was built as a fully functioning adult apparently um <laughs> manufactured in a shop it's like off to the factory <laughs> yeah um no no yeah and it's but it is it is a stunningly well-made film it is is beautiful um it's well constructed it is as andrew pointed out hilarious at times um and kind of like hilarious in a way that you you kind of i i feel I, there are points where i felt bad laughing but i didn't stop laughing which is a remarkable thing uh, in a movie like this where it's like i don't know if i should be laughing at this but i'm not gonna stop um which i kind of like really admired in terms of its, its construction and then finally so Aoife, if viewers have not watched a clockwork orange now that they can legally uh watch it in ireland and the uk would you recommend that they video it uh, on a streaming service um yes video well i think yeah i, I absolutely I mean, even if you don't like it, at, watch it at least once, just for the sheer bravura filmmaking involved, for the for the use of music, for the um, uh, the set designs, for the the wonderful voiceover. Um, just to watch a filmmaker at the top of his craft, yes, absolutely watch it. Um, you might not like it, but you won't see anything else like it. Yeah. Um, and the irony is, you probably have seen lots of things trying to be like it, but you you won't see anything that matches it. Uh, and even if you just yeah, just to get all those Simpsons references, you should watch it. <laughs> yeah, um, I love that. That's that's a recurring two fifty motif. It's like yeah, if you want to understand the Simpsons better, watch a watch this movie. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend it? Um, yeah, no, I I I I would. I mean, it would be it would be a. a you know, a qualified recommendation in that, like it, it I, su- I suppose, um, it, it, it's a, it kind of a difficult movie, um, and like it, it probably worth warning, um, people about that, and I guess like we've, we've probably said enough, um, but, um, well, sorry. In terms of warning, we'll 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 talk more about it. I, yeah, I, I guess side. later on. Well, I mean, it does feature yeah, but... that very catchy "Singing in the Rain" song. Nothing that has "Singing in the Rain" could be dark or ominous <laughs> or nightmarish, right? <laughs> no, of course yeah, not. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. No, but I but I would recommend people watch it, like for all those reasons. So 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 that you understand <laughs> um, the Simpsons. So that when whenever whenever we have Halloween parties again, you will understand what somebody is trying to uh, accomplish. <laughs> when, <laughs> when, and they dress up as a cricket wear... player wearing eyeliner. Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like so you're uh... yeah, you're yeah. a batsman, right? That's what you're doing. You're a batsman. Um, but yes, and I would I would also actually recommend again qualified recommendation, and you probably know why it's qualified given you listen to this podcast. It is it is a bit violent it is a bit unpleasant it is unsettling it is nightmarish but it's also beautiful um it's stunning and it stays with me it has like re-watching it for this podcast i had not watched it in decades and i was amazed at how much i remembered of it um it is it is stunning um it is well worth seeking out so yes i will wholeheartedly recommend that 
With that in mind then, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone! So Aoife, what is A Clockwork Orange about for you? Um, I think ultimately it's about free will and should 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 be able be allowed to have free will. Um, I mean, that's essentially the, the message of the film. You know, we, we follow Alex's, um, you know, Alex's character arc from a violent, violent thug to reformed character, but reformed against his will, shall we say, and what that has cost him in terms of, um, you know, losing his love of Beatles and Glorious Night, um, <laughs> and then back to being a, a violent thug again, you know, and um, it, it raises a lot of moral questions, I think, you know, it, um, you know, is, is society right to, um, you know, to treat prisoners like that? Um, should we, if, if, if we had the power to, um, you know, to basically to brainwash prisoners into, or to brainwash criminals into behaving better, should we, like, if, if we take away their free will, is, is that the right thing to do? You know, and it, it tackles that, that's a very, very difficult subject to tackle. I think it tackles it quite well, you know. Um, and I, you know, and the sort of the, the lefty liberal person that I am, I would say, yeah, I think free will is important, even if that free will means you're a violent thug, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is kind of where my, my kind of concern of it seeming like a teenage movie kind of comes from, because absolutely everything in the movie is bright primary colors and kind of like pushed to the range of satire. And there's absolutely no room for nuance or kind of like, you know, or kind of detail anywhere. Like, I think that the movie kind of completely obscures any perspective, as you point out, that isn't Alex's. Um, And it's very deliberate. It's very conscious. Like all of his victims are like caricatures or they're barely featured on screen or they're deeply unpleasant of themselves. Um, And he's really the only character that we center on. And so you have this kind of Kubrickan. And again, it's a very Kubrickan conflict where like there's a quote here from an interview in 1972 with the New York Times, which is perhaps the most Kubrick quote ever. One of the most dangerous fallacies that has influenced a great deal of political and philosophical thinking is that man is essentially good, and that society, which makes him bad. Rousseau transferred original sin from man to society, and this view has, Im- has importantly contributed to what I believe has become a crucially incorrect premise on which to base moral and political philosophy. Um, in other words, basically, Kubrick's belief is that people are inherently evil, um, and that evil stems from man, and that there's no real point in kind of like taming it and then any society that's constructed is just playing against the nature of man and like that that's the kind of thing that you see with Kubrick's films repeatedly like you see it in Full Metal Jacket you see it in even the way that he kind of composes his shots it's always this idea of kind of like a structured world but it's it's built atop this idea that man is violent evil nasty unpleasant brutish horrific and that's man's natural state and anything that you build on top of it is just an illusion or a kind of a, a lie. Um, I I probably push back on the kind of um, okay. Sorry. While while it might be perhaps a, a simple kind of a viewpoint in itself, I think it's provocative enough yeah. of kind of thought and discussion that it, that it doesn't feel to me anyway like it's kind of um, uh, you know. Um, uh, light or insignificant. No, I, or, I don't mean it's light um, or insignificant. I just, I just like, 
what I think, like, what I really like about Kubrick's films when they work really well is that they, they never feel like they're sugarcoated. They never, like, Kubrick avoids the sort of manipulation that you associate with, say, Spielberg, where Spielberg is constantly not only showing you stuff, he's showing you people looking at stuff, so you know how you're supposed to look at the stuff that he's showing you. And Kubrick tends to be, I think Eva pointed out, a much colder filmmaker, and I think that's fair, I think that's accurate. Um, what I find, what I, I kind of find myself doubting about, a, or what I find uncomfortable about A Clockwork Orange is that, like, it's literally just Alex versus society. There's no context that, no sense that society is made up of other people. Like, there's nobody outside of Alex, and I realize that's his perspective, but it also seems to be the films, if that yeah, makes sense. I think it's, a pr it's it, like, I disagree with oh. the kind of, I guess, Hobbesian worldview, like, <laughs> yeah. kind of dead. <laughs> We're dead, all animals, and, yeah. Yeah, and and I I I I would tend to like, and this is feels like I I know this seems very kind of highfalutin, but I feel like this movie appropriately <laughs> kind of provokes that sort of like philosophical yeah. kind of uh, 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 thinking about thing where where it is the old kind of debate between like Rousseau and I guess and and, and Hobbes and the idea of like is there can um did. The war of all against all, isn't it? Well, like, yeah. an, an, obviously, these days, an, an unfortunate, unfashionable term, but Rousseau's idea of the noble savage, like that, ben, that um, um, humankind is like essentially good, and that's, yeah. and that we 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 don't we don't, yeah. But there, there there there's a lot of stuff in it as well from from like other kind of there's a lot of kind of philosophical questions in it like there, 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 there's a very sort of a Kantian thing about um if somebody if somebody does something a uh, good or doesn't some do something bad um out of like uh, but it's not out of a place of duty it's out yeah. of a place of inclination like is there any moral worthiness in that at all like can can Alex be good if he doesn't if, want to be good, if, if he, he hasn't yeah, made the choice, if he has no choice. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. If 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 to be bad would call him, cause him pain, then how can we praise him? Yeah, but and, that's the priest. The priest makes that argument. The priest is arguing the yeah. moral center of the film, which I find interesting because it is that very idea that yeah, you have to make a moral choice to be good, and if your choice to be good isn't isn't made or rooted in that, then it has no value whatsoever. Uh, which I find kind of, and I do okay. That that is interesting. That's a that's a big idea. I think. No, well, I was going to say, I mean, the, you know, obviously like, the film is from Alex's perspective, but he's also the narrator of the film. Yeah. So there's, mm. you know, we have to question, is he a reliable narrator? Because everything we see is is what he's telling us happened. And we have to wonder, you know, did it actually happen that way? Um, and how much is he embellishing to make himself look better? Um, so I, I think it's interesting in that, in that respect. I also think it's a very darkly funny film and it took me a, a number of viewings to get that it is a black comedy like it's a very broad comedy in, in places as well with this sort of the shouty british people in it and yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know there's a lot of over-the-top acting not least from malcolm mcdowell himself you know so it's um patrick mcgee nobody watches oh. somebody eat spaghetti like patrick mcgee <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Kubrick stare. I mean, it opens with the Kubrick stare with Alex staring directly at the camera. You know, directly at us as, as, as the camera pulls back and they're sitting in the in the Corova milk bar. You know, and raising his glass as well, which apparently Kubrick didn't catch on the first on the first shot. He didn't realize until he looked at the dailies that 
McDowell had done that apparently. Wow, yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's. I mean, that that opening shot is just just beautiful in itself. You know, it's um, it it's just sucks you right into the film. Even though the camera is panning back, you sort of get sucked right in. You know, it's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. Um, and Wendy, Wendy I, Carlos's score there, which is again that kind of synth-heavy kind of Beethoven thing. And the fact that it holds the glare for as long as it does pulling back. And and you're right, actually. You mentioned, I think you mentioned before we jumped to the score zone, the narration and the writing of the script, which is obviously written by Kubrick, because I think that uh, Burgess had written a script beforehand, and we'll include in the show notes because again, it was found while cleaning his house in like 2016. Um, but like apparently, like Kubrick just threw it out and wrote his own script. The dialogue, the narration is astounding here. Um, yeah. It's a remarkably like fantastic. Yeah, it, it's wonderful, and and, and it, you know it's it's voiced in in Malcolm McDowell's you know you know own accent, you know, and that 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 wonderful sort of British accent that he has, like because because when I was reading the book with all these um, sort of slang words, it didn't ring for me until until I saw the movie and heard how a lot of those words were pronounced by Alex. Yeah. I thought, yeah, that, that actually makes perfect <laughs> sense. You know, it's um. It's it's a beautiful narration, I think. I I think it's a very good point as well about um the broadness of this movie. Like how how did it, like you mentioned porridge, but like, <laughs> that, like parts of it in the in the in the hospital felt mm. like carry on matron. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The sex scene at the end, yeah, like where <laughs> yeah. Alex is um, moaning and then there's a moan coming from the other bed, yeah. <laughs> Um, the bit that I really laughed at is is Julian, the bodybuilder played by David Prowse. Yeah. Like the fact that like the the writer has been living in this place for years and he's been in a wheelchair and obviously that's that's really dark and depressing, but he hasn't made his house more wheelchair accessible. So instead he just has this bodybuilder whose job it is is to pick him up and carry him down the steps. And that image always always makes me laugh, uh, which I kind of adore. Um, I want. I want to give the on on the subject of kind of broad comedy. I I, w- I want to give give some love to 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 Michael Bates, the 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 prison warden. It's like <laughs> shut your filthy hole, you scum. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I love um like when they're doing that that demonstration on stage of like how Alex has been cured. I love the reaction shots of like the confused and startled prison warden who's like or aroused that point. Yeah, or aroused. <laughs> but like you get these reactions, which again, they're they're very they're not like what Kubrick normally does. They're more kind of what you associate with Spielberg. But it's very pointedly like, yeah, this is a Pavlovian response that this man is having to what he's seeing on screen, which I kind of really love. So it's like delight confusion and you could tell it's like an actor's workshop where you imagine Kubrick's like you're aroused but you're confused you're angry you're upset you're hungry go for it I gotta love those shots they're they're kind of brilliant um because there's no there's no sense of moderation there there's no sense of you know no sense Kubrick ever said look you're probably giving me a bit too much you're giving me a 10 can I get a six instead it's like no 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 you're giving me a 10 I'd like a 15 please yeah and I think that was probably the start of I mean you look at uh, Malcolm McDowell's performance in in this, and then you can immediately see Jack Nicholson's over the top performance in The Shining. And I sort of wonder was that was that the start of Kubrick's you know getting his actors to act over the top for some reason? You know, it's 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 a bizarre performance, but it's also yeah, <laughs> it's also mesmerizing in a way, and it's hard to to look away from it. Well, I think I think actually to be fair to McDowell, I'd argue again because the film is is told from Alex's subjective perform- uh, perspective, he's the only actual person who feels like a fully formed character mm-hmm. as opposed to a caricature. He he's the he's the character who doesn't feel like he's a character in a carry on film or a porridge serial or whatever. He actually yeah. 
feels like, like a the human rest being. Of them, they all are meant to be kind of like panto kind of. <laughs> Which is how Alex presents it. Um, I love again his narration is so fantastic. Like the bit where he's saying and he goes to prison, and and that began the like depressing part of my story. Um, which, <laughs> or the bit the bit where he throws himself out the window and he's like, "I did not die because if I died, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, be narrating." <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be, be telling, telling you this. Like it's something that I really love about how Alex is written, where he's. Like the bit where Deltoid, I think, says, you know, you have a bit of brain. You have an above average brain. And I love that, like, Alex does have, like, a slightly above average brain. He's not a genius, but he's smart. And there are moments where, like, that intelligence or that kind of book learning brushes against, like, the fact that he is still obviously a teenager in ways that I kind of adore about it. Where he's he's incredibly verbose at times. He's incredibly articulate, but he's also very, very stupid um, at certain points. Like the moment where like, he, he comes into the writer's house and he's like, oh, don't worry, it's okay. I had a horror show of a disguise. He's not going to figure me out. And then sits in the bathtub singing. Like <laughs> singing in the rain. The rain. <laughs> 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 or like when he when he takes the glass of wine and he's, he's immediately suspicious. He's like, is this guy trying to poison me? Takes a sip, one sip, and it's fine. He's like, "Yep, no, I'll take a whole glass and a second <laughs> glass, please." <laughs> like, it's re- it's a remarkable performance, and I think McDowell is is phenomenal. Apparently, he was cast off the role. It was if, yeah, was Lindsay Anderson's if, yeah, yeah. So Kubrick saw him in if and basically said, "Yeah, you're in the you're in the role," because he was 27 when he filmed it. Apparently, Alex is supposed to be 19. Um, when you know, to be fair, he does look young, but it is also a bit Dawson Creek at times. Yeah. Um, but it kind of works because the re- as as Eva pointed out, the rest of the movie is so panto, you can kind of buy it. And again, the the costumes that they wore apparently came from the fact that when Kubrick met McDowell, McDowell was on his way to or from cricket practice, and he just had a bag with a cup in it and uh, a cricket shirt. And Kubrick's like, "Yep, yeah, that's that's the costume. That's what we're going with there." Um, which I kind of like as well. Although apparently that the shooting of it was a nightmare uh, for McDowell, although he's very proud of it. Um, he apparently that sequence with his eyes, mm. he scratched his cornea. The guy, the doctor who they hired to drip like the liquid into his eyeballs, apparently scratched his cor- scratched his eye at one point with it. Um, and also the sequence where he's grabbed by the two police officers, um, by by Dim and by Georgie, and pressed underwater. There was supposed to be a breathing apparatus under there waiting for him to use, but apparently there wasn't. So in that long take, um, he basically he was held underwater for 30, 40, uh, about a minute of screen time. Yeah, I, I actually timed this when I was watching it last night. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, he's under for just about a minute. Yeah. Uh, and apparently 27 takes, as you might expect from Kubrick. Yeah. Um, and again, possibly, again, this is one of my my favorite petty Kubrick stories, because uh, I, I, I love Kubrick as a director. But occasionally you hear stories that are kind of like, mm. that make you go, really, Kubrick? Really, Stanley? Um, <laughs> apparently, McDowell said when he wanted to do the role, he said, look, I'd ask for 100 grand and 2.5% of the box office, which is what I got paid on if. And Stanley, Kubrick apparently told him that Warner had refused the 2.5%. And then, however, after the film was released, he was invited to meet the studio heads. And they apparently said to McDowell, you're going to be very rich on the 2.5% we gave Stanley for you. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> but uh, and and McDowell's very passive aggressive. It was a terrible way to treat me after I'd given so much of myself. But I got over it. Um, it's like I don't hold a grudge because he's dead and I won. But still, 
Yeah, I, I think I remember seeing um, an interview with McDowell where he said that when he made a Clockwork Orange, like he was with Stanley day in, day out for the, the, the amount of shooting. And that once the film was done, that was it. Kubrick just completely cut him off, you know, and just, you yeah, know. No, no. I, they used to play table tennis, I think, as well, mm. was the thing. And like, he, I remember, the, the, as, if I recall the version of the story I read was McDowell showed up for table tennis the day after shooting was over. I was just like, that's it. No, it's, he just wasn't there. <laughs> Which is yeah. a hell of a way to find out. Apparently, they, they did consider, apparently, the beat back in the 60s. So, obviously, the novel was written in 62. We might talk about that in a moment. Uh, and it was adapted by Andy Warhol uh, as vinyl in 1965. But apparently during the 60s, um, the Beatles had a campaign to get Mick Jagger cast as Alex, uh, which is kind of interesting. The Beatles organized a campaign within the British film industry arguing that uh, Mick Jagger should play Alex. Which is I'd imagine of... it was mostly George Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> it does, it seems to be. <laughs> and, 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 it sounds like George. And, and Ringo um, just hanging on, find, trying to find something to do there. But yeah, so... The, Let's talk a little bit then about kind of the development of the story and of the film, actually, because um, obviously it was written by uh, Burgess, by Anthony Burgess. And it's kind of fascinating because Burgess seemed to come to resent um, the novel and in particular the film's success over his career. Um, in his biography of D.H. Lawrence, which I think is called um, something like a oh flame into being, he claimed basically, um, and here's here's the quote from him, the book I am best known for or only known for, is a novel I am prepared to repudiate. Written a quarter of a century ago, a joyeuse beast knocked off for money in three weeks. It became known as the raw material for a film which seemed to glorify sex and violence. The film made it easier for readers of my book to misunderstand what it was about. And misunderstanding will pursue me until I die. Um, and it's it's been suggested that although... That's this kind of story that Burgess told after the fact. He actually spent 18 months working on it. Um, there's some criticism of that. There's some suggestion that he's he's retroactively trying to repudiate well, it, it. And one of the reasons... It's a shame, I think. Oh, because like, like kind of he brings things, I think, to that book that another author couldn't. Like his, even like his, his, his background in linguistics. Yeah, well, I mean, I it was inspired by a horrible true story about his wife, Lynn, his first wife, Lynn, um, who was assaulted um, two years into their marriage in 1944, presumably by American men uh, deserting GIs on leave. Um, she was assaulted by them and she lost a child. And basically, apparently the, one of her attackers tried to break her finger um, to take off her golden wedding ring. And that's the inspiration for like the key passage in A Clockwork Orange, where a writer witnesses his wife being brutally assaulted by a bunch of young men. Um, so it is it's a very personal um, story from Burgess in, in that respect as well. Um, and But I think one of the suggestions is, and again, this is the kind of the, the dark side of Stanley Kubrick, is the suggestion that like when the movie was released and when it was generating controversy, because it did generate controversy when it was released, it was Burgess who was wheeled out in front of the cameras. It was Burgess who had to talk to the reporters because Kubrick, as everybody knows, was reclusive. And he kind of like snuck off into his own corner and back to his house uh, to work on what would become Barry Lyndon. And Burgess apparently never forgave Kubrick for the fact that he had to deal with all these questions about the movie and its kind of copycat attacks and, and kind of everything that kind of came after that. But um, yeah, no, so Burgess is kind of... but. Yeah, so basically Burgess apparently wrote it very quickly in order to sell it and to make some money off it. Um, but it is kind of interesting that like it became arguably the defining Burgess text. Like it, it's 
as he said himself, if people know me, it's from A Clockwork Orange, which is kind of striking. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the only novel of Burgess that I've read. Um, and again, it, I only read it because, I, you know, I wasn't able to see the film, you know, so it, it's, yeah, it's probably the one that's most associated with him. Like, I'm, I'm aware of other novels like Airfleet Powers um, and probably a couple more, but I think, yeah, Clockwork Orange is probably the one that everybody would associate it with him. Um, and, and actually, like, it, we talk about like Lockwood Orange as being kind of transcendent and being kind of like pushing boundaries. It's a remarkably well-made and well-structured film. Mm. Um, it, it's again, Kubrick's sense of symmetry. And obviously you can see it in the way that he constructs his frames and the way in which he constructs his stories. But here, locations, you locations, yeah, the way in which he uses locations, but like here, a Clockwork Orange, I think Vincent Canby in his review for the New York times in 1972 described it as like, Dickensian in its structure in that like the narrative comes full circles characters who are introduced early on show up towards the climax by chance uh, and resolution uh, brings us to the beginning to make the ending kind of that much more bleak it kind of like the you end up going back where you started from and the idea of kind of this cyclic structure which is is remarkable it's it's a remarkably well-constructed story more uh well-constructed than the the novel um kind of then then yeah with with the version with the kind of extra chapter. Oh, do we want to talk I'll, about this? Actually? Oh. Like, I'm, yeah, I guess. I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm not sure how I feel about the 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 last chapter. If I felt, I think I felt reading it like I kind of a bit robbed. Um. Well, we should put um, this in context just for listeners who maybe haven't read the book or have read one version of the book or another version of the book. So, in the movie, um, you will note that when um. That basically when Alex is assaulted by police officers, it's Georgie and Dim, the two former droogs. You may have noticed that Pete disappeared entirely. Um, Pete, in the novel, uh, settled down to start a family and had a nice straight life. Apparently in the novel, I believe Alex has an encounter with Pete and decides basically that what he wants to do is he wants to settle down and have a normal life. He basically wants to become a responsible adult. Um, And I actually have a quote here from uh, Burgess himself talking about why that ending was important to him and why he felt that it was a betrayal for the US publishers to cut it and for Kubrick not to include it. In the British edition of the book, though not in the American nor in the film, there's an epilogue that shows Alex growing up, learning distaste for his old way of life, thinking of love as more than just a mode of violence, even foreseeing himself as a husband and father. The way has always been open. At last he chooses to take it. He has been a sour orange. Now he is filled with something like decent human sweetness. So that's kind of like uh, Burgess's take on that. But um, Aoife, had you, which version of the book did you read? And kind of like which ending do you, how do you feel about the, the two endings? Um, like I, I read the, um, the uh, US version. So I hadn't read, and I still haven't read that, that final missing chapter. So I'm not sure. I mean, I think I like I like Kubrick's version. I think I like that ending because it's it's wonderfully um, pessimistic, and yeah. and it probably appeals to Kubrick's um, you know view, view of, of human nature and um, probably sense of my own view of human nature at times, um, considering the, <laughs> the the times we're living in at the moment. Um, I think it's um, yeah. I, I do like. I mean, I like the fact that that it is structured like that. It's it's it, it's sort of a, a film that that you know it goes full goes full circle. Um, and yes, we encounter characters we've encountered at the start of the film. Like even even the tramp shows up towards the end. Yeah. And you know, it looks everybody's against Alex at that point. But I think um, I do think 
it's I don't think I would have liked it if it had the happy ending with Alex settling down. I think that would have just felt like a bit of a cop out, you know. I think yeah. it would have looked like a sort of a Hollywood ending, even though it's it's in yeah. the novel. It said it would have felt like a Hollywood ending. He found his way in the end, basically, would be mm, what it would yeah. seem to be saying. Like which would remove a lot of the thorniness of like as Eva pointed out, the big debate, which is like is it right for society to fix somebody, you know, to to make somebody who doesn't fit in to turn them into a clockwork orange? Um, if they turn, if he turns himself into one, like later on, does that undermine that that kind of theme or that question, or that dilemma? Perhaps. Sorry. No, yeah. I, I feel like it completely undermines it because it doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, he ends up all it, right in the end. Yeah. He, yeah, exactly. Like, so what? What? What was the point in kind of making us think along those terms <laughs> if you're just going to resolve it that way? Yeah, it's a bit of a cop out ending. Like, well, everyone, every everyone turns out fine anyway. Yeah, it, it certainly would seem to minimize the consequences of his actions, which are not necessarily like foregrounded in the film as it is. Like, it's very much like, okay, well, look, sure, people died, people were assaulted, people were beaten, but in the end, Alex Delarge became a decent human being. I um I I I I like that kind of well, sorry, it, obviously it's harrowing that that. That's um point about this being inspired by um Burgess's uh, own experiences. Own, own experience. Because yeah. the, 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 the character of the of the uh, author in this, while while it's very big, um kind of and and not kind of, you know, naturalistic or anything, there is a certain amount of pathos in it because you you know that he is it's that it's that sort of thing that you see in kind of some movies and books where you, where 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 you take somebody who's quite sort of um like on 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 the left in the kind of political spectrum but who wants know, vengeance wants or, yeah 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 who who's who's wants kind a bit of, of the vino um, yeah they well yeah they're, <laughs> they're conditioned to to kind of you know want to protect freedoms and then end up wanting law and order instead you know um it's it's an interesting sort of idea there that that character if you can call him a character i guess no it is i mean again again that's and again kubrick's talked about this in interviews where he's again it's that horseshoe that symmetrical structure where like his point is that like alex as much as alex is the only human character in the film really but the film mm. makes the point that both the political left and the political right want to treat him as a tool. They want to take away his personhood. They want to exploit him. Um, so you have like the the government, which is leaning towards totalitarianism, that's pushing towards fascism. And again, the film, interesting, again, the film has been kind of dissected. And people try to figure out what the hell is going on in the world of A Clockwork Orange. Like, has Russia like conquered uh, the UK? Like, has the UK become a socialist state that's tipping into totalitarianism? What's going on there? But it's suggested that the government is increasingly right wing and wants to use Alex as a propaganda poster for them. And, you know, at the start, it's like, oh, well, look, this technique worked perfectly. We'll sell this as like a law and order, like tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime kind of policy that we're going to sell. And then <laughs> to you quote Tony Blair, to quote Tony Blair. Um, th thank you, Andrew. But you also have then um, like the, the left wing, like the, the people, as you point out, who are supposed to be, you know, more tolerant and more forgiving and opposed to that going, no, 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 no. But we can use him to topple the government and also just get our own petty vengeance against him as well. 
Um, they, they say, he says as well, the Minister for the Interior says, like, this will free up the prison. Yeah, for, for political <laughs> for prison. political <laughs> opponents. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like the idea that they haven't reached the idea of using brainwashing on their political opponents yet. That's just for common criminals. Well, that, that wouldn't be very spiteful. <laughs> That's <laughs> fair. Um, if you could just literally change your opponent's mind, what is the point of a political prison, really? Um, yeah, they should suffer. <laughs> yeah, that was the basic yeah. But yeah, no, and I Again, it's that idea of kind of the horseshoe. Again, that symmetry that you see in Kubrick's structure, where everything kind of like bends around and everything's mirrored and everything kind of reflects itself, which is, is again, I like the idea that it works thematically as well as like visually. I like the kind of idea that that is his his reform or his kind of redemption doesn't come from the Ludovico technique. if at all, yeah, I was about to say, does it? It comes from comes from him revisiting his past, you know, like being 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 confronted. I think with 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 um with the consequences of uh, um is he redeemed at all um, of his his actions and be, being being made a um a victim, yeah. Because, I mean, he literally um, wears the same dressing gown that the writer wore. Um, like, when he's at dinner, it's the same dressing gown the writer wore during the assault on him. And obviously, as Eva pointed out, he's assaulted by the homeless people as well. He's subject to the same brutalization from Dim that he inflicted on Dim in the first place. Literally down to, like, throwing Dim in the water. Dim basically tries to drown him in a pig trough. It's, you know, it's very much an eye for an eye kind of approach, which is interesting. But I, I kind of want to ask that, actually. Aoife, do you think Alex is redeemed at the end? Um, or do you think... He says he isn't. No, no. It's a, yeah, I'm cured. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm cured. I, I think I'm that's, cured a, of that's the ironic. Cure. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. no, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, no. He's, he's just gone back to his old ways, you know, that, yeah. and and only because it's politically expedient for the government to allow it to happen, you know. So, you know, who who are the bad guys here as well? You know, let's not, it's, it's easy to forget that, you know, that there is a lot of polit- political machinations going on here. Yeah. And, um, I love that sequence where it's like, which job and how much? Um, where it's like... <laughs> yeah, while he's being fed like a baby, you know, he's like, <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, so Alex, Alex is a, to- like, he's obviously a, a product of his society. He's also a, a tool of both the left and the right, as you said, you know, so there's a lot going on in this film, you know, and I think, um I think you know, there's a certain swagger about Alex throughout the film, and even that that sequence in the um, in the music shop. Remember, remember yes. when we used to be a bit by music in shops, <laughs> the Chelsea drugstore, uh, famous in uh, "You Can't Always Get What You Want" from the from the Rolling uh, yeah, Stones. Yeah, with him walking yeah. around in in that wonderful costume that 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 coat he wears, you know, <laughs> and um, um, you know, it's 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 just fascinating to 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 watch him swaggering swagger around in this society and with this brutalist architecture um that you know that it's just actually london <laughs> like yeah. it doesn't it doesn't show off london in a very good light to be honest you know it, show, it doesn't show off as a, as a pretty dismal place <laughs> um so yeah i think no i don't think to, to answer your question no i don't i don't think alex is alex is reformed he's just back to being his old gleeful hateful horrible <laughs> self at the end of the film you know we're back where we started basically it it's funny to me how like obviously there there's a lot of it like in Pinewood, but the stuff that's on location is around London. Mm. Like it's kind of like Boreham Wood and places like that. But 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 it's Alex with his kind of like it, it leads 
sort of like with a bit of Liverpool kind of um, um, accent, like, like 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 Malcolm McDowell himself. Yeah. Um, and and I guess other other characters like in it with these kind of um, uh, northern accents, but yes. you still get the sense that it's like 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 the, the, the lodger. Lo- the lodger is a fantastic I love the Is it Joe? Is it Joe? Joe, yeah, yeah, he's the Joe. most. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's like you, you've, you've, you've disgraced your parents. <laughs> your poor mother. <laughs> your poor mother. Yeah. <laughs> I've become more of a son to them than you ever were. <laughs> and I, I, I love, I love the bit where he's like, "What about my steak?" And his dad's like, "Oh, he." He passed. Um, <laughs> we clearly put him down. Yeah. You kept him in a drawer. It wasn't like a terrarium or anything. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get to have the moral high ground here. Um, but I, I do like again. It, that's the wonderful black comedy of it. Like the sequence where where Alex leaves and like the, the family just the father gets out of his chair and just hugs Joe, which I kind of adore. <laughs> so be- it's like yeah. weirdly beautiful and kind of like strangely touching. By the way, um. As somebody who appreciates puns, you will notice that Alex is Alex, meaning without law. That is apparently why he was named Alex. It was also an allusion oh. to Alexander Delarge being Alexander the Great. And this idea, and apparently all of the droogs uh, are named for famous Russian leaders or czars. I don't know who Dim was meant to be. Dimitri? D- yeah, I'm guessing Dimitri. Um, <laughs> but yes, all these famous Russian leaders as well, which is kind of interesting. Um Actually, to bring it back to that kind of um, the Chelsea drugstore, one of the interesting things about it that's, that's been noted is the abundance of 2001 kind of imagery that kind of circulates through the film. And it's notable, particularly in the Chelsea drugstore scene, because there's a very, 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 and it, maybe it's just watching it in high definition, but I imagine watching it on a big screen as well. There's a very prominent 2001 LP visible um, on the kind of shelf there. And it's notable that, you know, there's sequences where like the staging of the Droog's attack on a homeless man has been compared to the behavior of the ape men in the Dawn of Man sequence, for example. The monolith speakers that appear in Alex's bedside oh, in the final the scene get yeah, kind of recall the monolith appearing at the bed scene at the end of 2001 as well. Um, that's like I think Ebert's pointed out that things like at the climax, the way in which he shoots um, Alex is very similar to how he shot Care Dooley as astronaut. So th- like the shot of him eating at the table with the back of his head and all that sort of stuff and it's kind of interesting that like Kubrick it's been argued that like 2001 is about mankind transcending or mankind evolving or mankind moving on to the next stage and like so you have this immediate contrast with like A Clockwork Orange where it almost says that like no no the opposite is also possible it's also possible that mankind's future will be like a descent into savagery and chaos because as Andrew pointed out, it is shot around London, but it's a London that is dystopian. Like when he's walking back to his flat block uh, with this, was it like, was it Compass East or kind of like Linear North um, is basically like the address of it. But it's like something from High Rise. There's like all this kind of like waste in the corridors. Again, very much like tenement living would have been at the time and would have gotten worse over time as well. But there's a sense that, you know, for all that it's the future, for all that this is, you know, mankind's future, it's it's like, no, no, no. Mankind's future could just be a descent into savagery or kind of moral decay or moral collapse. The future is not going to be better necessarily, which I find interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you referred to it earlier about um, how it reminds you a little bit of of Gilliam's Brazil. Mm-hmm. And it actually, it, that struck me last night when I, when I was watching it as well. And certainly in terms of the, 
the bureaucracy. Like, I mean, for me, some of the funniest scenes are um, when he's signing for the Ludovico technique. Yeah. You know, he has to sign in, in triplicate. Yeah. Anyway, that scene goes on much longer than it needs to. And then when he's been handed over to the Ludovico technique, it's signed again in triplicate. You know, it has, the and that's, has I just, to check the board for the doctor's yeah. name as well. Yeah. Like, I love that. It's like, Dr. Yeah. And Care. And he, and he, <laughs> and he tear, tears off the receipt, you know, and but also the bits where he has to stand behind the white line. Yes. You know, so and, on the other side. Yeah, yeah he's going, the Blues Brothers ripped that off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's. I love his little parade step. Yeah. <laughs> when he comes into the. Yeah. He's so so good in moments like that, like 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 when he's been fed like like a child. Yeah, just uh, opening his mouth. I know yeah. listeners can't see, but I'm I'm miming Alex being fed like a child. <laughs> But he, 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 the kind of great sort of playfulness that makes you kind of, um, like in, in, in spite of how terrible Alexander the Large is, you, you, you do, there, there is, there is a kind of a charm as well, I think, because of that kind of, uh, mischief or kind of, playfulness obviously it's more serious than mischief (laughs) but it seems to come from a very kind of like obviously he's a complete psychopath but but it is also kind of the the something very childlike about him um i mean like again that's probably part of what's so so unsettling about a clockwork orange is how charming alex is and again a large part of that's about dal's performance and kind of kubrick's script but like as you're going along and again, like, I think Eva mentioned, like, the opening 30 minutes fly by. And I think that, like, and, and again, Quentin Tarantino may not necessarily have, like, you know, the ground to stand on when he's making this criticism as well. But, like, Tarantino's observation about it, like, was that basically you're looking at those opening 30 minutes and you're like, okay, so we're going to do a sequence about how horrible this is later on or we're going to deal with the consequence of this later on. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. Um, And this is an actual quote from Quentin Tarantino. This is not Darren paraphrasing. I know and you know your dick was hard the entire time you were shooting those first 20 minutes. You couldn't keep it in your pants the entire time you were editing and scoring it. You liked the rest of the movie, but you put up with the rest of the movie. You did it for those 20 minutes. And if you say you didn't, you're a liar. I may have omitted a word there, just so I don't have to bleep myself. But yes, I kind of like, I find that, because the movie's opening 20 minutes go they, they're they propulsive they're despite all the terrible stuff that's happening on screen they're shot beautifully they're kinetic they have this infectious energy to them um and it's kind of it, it's fascinating that horrific push pull that you have uh with those two where like with that kind of like what you're seeing is horrible but how you're seeing it is striking and infectious and as andrew said kind of almost like childlike wonder or childlike kind of uh energy to it and of course how you're hearing it as yeah. well because it, it, it's the kind of kubrickism of you of his use of classical music yeah um again like 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 2001 yeah yes yeah i mean yeah you're seeing some some pretty horrible stuff you know which you know on a sort of aesthetic level it, it's interesting how it's done but you know you know, for example, the you know the rape scene. Um, you know, there's a couple of rape scenes in the in the film, yeah. and you you're kept at a long distance from them. You know, so it, I, I find it. I yeah, the more I watch it, the more I find it quite quite disturbing in that sense. In in that, I'm not sure what Kubrick was trying to achieve there, um, because it's 
you know, is, you know, he's inviting you to just to watch, to be a participant in it, I think. And I think that that's quite disturbing. You know, I think. Um, yeah, particularly like say that the first assault where it's like mm. Billy Boy, um, yeah. where the camera holds for this really long take of her. Very being long take, yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of, of her kind of being beaten down and resigned and her losing energy and her basically having everything torn off and fighting a little bit and then being exposed a bit more. And it it is, as you point out, there's a real sense of like, why are we seeing all of this? Why, like, and again, I know it was 1972, and I know that it's a different time, and I know that we're applying like different standards to how, say, something like Promising Young Woman or how Revenge would shoot their sexual assault scenes. To be clear, and I'm not, you know, I'm not. <laughs> was it was it was it Miles Surrey who made the point that watching to watching Clockwork Orange in the age of cancel in the age of cancellation is kind of interesting because you do kind of wonder um, in terms of like Kubrick's filmography. But it does kind of, it, it is, I, I found myself wondering that when I was watching last night. That's kind of like when I thought of like the teenage boy thing where I don't think there was necessarily any real malice there. I'm not, like, I'm not like Quentin Tarantino. Say, I don't think Kubrick's dick was hard the entire time he was shooting he it. He says more about <laughs> Tarantino. Tarantino. Yeah, I think it, it does actually, yeah. Yeah, um, but I, I do also wonder, like, what was, like, was this the best way to accomplish what you wanted to do? Like, was... Well, yeah. I mean if he was trying to horrify audiences I feel like kind of that that the 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 egregious kind of it 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 it's it's too much you know it um it's 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 not um it's not subtle um it's not you know it it it's not like um it's not like Hitchcock where you give the impression of showing showing something that you haven't, it's it's showing and lingering. It's um, showing more than you need to. Not even more than you need yeah. to. It's, it's it's not even like showing more than you need to. Showing what you need to and continuing to show it and continuing yeah. to show it and continuing to show it. Yeah, and it's it's making the audience more of a voyeur, I think, um, because you know you you you're quite a remo- because it's so stylized. You're you're yeah. quite you're 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 a long way from it, and you're quite removed from it, but you're also voyeuristically watching it because you know the way he shoots something compels you to watch it it's um yeah i i, I do have a problem with the sexual violence in this film and you know i didn't just gratuitous you know the um towards the end where you know alex is on stage there's a gratuitous um nudity no, there i like i'm 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 by no means prude but i'm just wondering just how necessary was all of this you know the way that was shot uh, yeah it's 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 one of the aspects of the films that I do that I do have problems with. I mean, again, to be clear, like this is something that was brought up at the time. I think that like Ebert's big criticism of it was basically the idea that, and he pointed to the use of say the fish, the the wide angle lens that gives you the kind of warped effect because it makes it seem like the world is inhabited by people who aren't really people. They're kind of like mm. bent light. They're just objects. They're they're kind of you know they they don't look exactly human when they're in shot because the way that lines bend when you get to the edge of a wide angle frame when it's used in extreme close up. Um, I think that Pauline Kael argued, like, and again, Pauline Kael actually really clever observation about it, which is that for her, A Clockwork Orange was like the logical culmination of the trend in Hollywood that really began with Bonnie and Clyde towards the depiction of violence um, in cinema. And I mean, she was not a huge fan of it. She was a big fan of like Kubrick's earlier work, but she really disliked A Clockwork Orange. But I wonder if there's something in there in a sense of like this being a limit case for 
you know, that kind of like new Hollywood kind of stage of violence where it's like we can now show this stuff on screen, stuff that we could never show during the production code era, stuff that we could never get away with, you know, during when we were shooting film noir. As Andrew pointed out, the stuff that Hitchcock had to like sublimate with images of trains driving through tunnels and stuff like that, or with a knife that never pierces flesh. So like with A Clockwork Orange, is there a sense of this is the edge, the very extreme other edge of that in terms of like, I suppose it's not really because you have the video nasties and stuff afterwards, but like as an art film, as a as a prestige film. It's definitely film. a trend at the time. Like yeah. I've, I, I've, I don't feel myself thinking of sort of contemporary movies unless kind of, I guess, there's probably some Danish person making <laughs> something similar. <laughs> but um, but um, uh, I think more of stuff like um, like some of the movies you've mentioned and other the other things like Straw Dogs. Straw Dogs is one as well, yeah. or The Wild Bunch or kind of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at the sort of the the art design in this film, like a lot of the art features, you know, female nudity. Like the yeah. um, the Crover Milk Bar is, yes, yeah. you know, has you know mannequins of women bent on all fours. Um, you know, you you pour your milk from a woman's breast in it. Um, the artwork in and she's treated with more humanity than any of the women in yeah. the film, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's spoken to nicely by, yeah. uh, by Dim, you know. And you know, and then the artwork on some of the walls in the apartments, you know, is it's it's all it's all female nudity. The only sort of male nudity you see in it is a couple of um, penises, you know, graffitied onto what? a wall. And the penis and, and that is used to bludgeon a woman to death. And the penis that is used to bludgeon a woman to death, you know. So it's yeah, I'm not sure what he's trying to say. <laughs> yeah, it's it. it and, I think kind of when 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 Darren when you spoke about kind of the way it doesn't really kind of uh, focus on other people in terms of the way it's shot, um, and the way we the, like we've spoken about the way the way those characters are played as well, whether yeah. kind of like pantomime, uh, broad or pantomime, but it's even like the the way the way they're um uh dressed like um and like his 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 mother is is kind of like pink hair yeah and uh kind of where it's this like bright red leather and it's like some sort of like yeah like a pantomime like a or prop, a cabaret or a prop or like something in a shop window yeah. kind of thing um and i mean yeah. yeah i mean this is kind of yeah in, in terms of kind of getting into to that aspect of the film i i do find it kind of odd and interesting that like and i wonder again you know, maybe Kubrick was doing something with like contrasting high culture and low culture where everything is pornographic, except, you know, that kind of union of sex and violence, except for Ludwig van Beethoven. And again, because you, you have this recurring idea that like what makes Alex human um, is the idea that he likes Lud- a bit of the old Ludwig van, even though he masturbates to it while staring at like four, four Jesus Christ's who's working in a chorus line. By the way, I love that sequence. The editing in that sequence is amazing. The sequence of Alex masturbating to is an ode to joy while you have the four Christ's and the camera basically making it look like they're dancing, um, which is again, one of like Kubrick's great sequences, I would argue. But like you have... I wonder, like, is that that emphasis on things like the all the pornographic images of women on the walls, the the weird dick ass sculpture piece of modern art thing that's going on? Well, I don't think I don't think anyone then was thinking like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are we objectifying women here? <laughs> <laughs> like, the, <laughs> I, no, I no, don't. No. Yeah, yeah no. like I, I, I think it's definitely like. 
really kind of unfortunate from our from our 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 perspective. I'm not saying it was right then. I'm just is it a, I'm 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 saying that like, you know, um, like the 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 people, the I guess filmmakers and artists weren't um horrible <laughs> masters and didn't use their kind of power to um to to portray um very kind of regressive um oh no i don't think we're canceling uh, kubrick we're not canceling kubrick no, and if no, we, no, and if we yeah, were there's yeah. probably worse things in terms of like his behavior on the set of the shining is probably mm. um serious than anything here i would argue yeah, I mean, but it's it's a deliberate aesthetic, you know. Like yeah. we all know Kubrick was so, um, you know, so much of a micromanager that you know everything that 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 we see, you know, yeah. is there deliberately. It's, a and it's something. Yeah. It's a choice, and a choice that that he made or that he signed off on, you know. So, um, I mean, you know, the penis sculpture thing. I mean, on the one sense, it's it's horrific what happens with that, but on the other sense, it's it's also very funny. Between just keeps bouncing up and down in the foreground. Where he you know? bounces it, and, she, yeah. and she's like, "Don't touch that. That's yeah. art." Um, like I, like yeah. I, I did laugh at that sequence where it's yeah. like, "Don't touch that. That's art." Um, like, I, I suppose. I mean, going going back to the, the way kind of um, uh, like naked women. And the kind of depiction of naked women in this, aside from uh, quite quite aside from the sexual violence, because I think that that that's fairly different. But it, it, like, if you wanted to be charitable or justify it, and I guess I don't know why you would, <laughs> but if you wanted to, you could say that this is a a teenage boy. Yeah, this is how Alex kind of sees. World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean. But me- where women are maybe, literally furniture. Maybe the tables weren't like that at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I mean, but also it sort of reminds me of some of the imagery in Blade Runner 2049. You yeah, know, the I think, two women in yeah. the desert, is it so, in the desert kind of kissing? You know, yeah. so, uh, you know, it's obviously, it's a film that has had influence, a, a influence and an impact, you know, and still, still does. Yeah. I think yeah, Blade Blade Runner is probably like obviously more kind of thoughtful twenty twenty forty nine <laughs> in terms of like these things, but yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely the 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 um the images, yeah, yeah, um, you can I, see that. One talk actually about the the kind of soundtrack and the use of classical music and stuff like that. Um, I do I remember when I when I mentioned that I was watching this, um, I got a wonderful comment online from somebody on Twitter who observed that yeah, Clockwork Orange. Isn't I remember not enjoying that because I was thinking that man, you can't appreciate Beethoven now is like the softest possible sentence for everything that Alex does over the course of the movie. Um, but I do quite like. I th- I think that's a fairly harsh sentence. <laughs> Be- like I I I think somebody kind of doesn't. Well, sorry, I don't want to be, like, <laughs> I think it's a big deal if 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 you were to take Beethoven away. It's like the the Tom Stoppard quote about um uh how good uh Buddy Holly in the Big Bopper was how Buddy Buddy Holly died in in a plane crash at age uh, what was it twenty five yeah. what if what if Beethoven had died in a plane crash at the age of twenty five the 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 history of music would be so different as as of course with the history of aviation <laughs> <laughs> but um I I kind of sorry I'm, I'm butchering. That. I, I find the um I find the use of classical music interesting here as well because so much of the movie even ignoring the kind of pornographic imagery so much of the movie is built around kind of kish 
you have things like say the decoration is parents apartment for example which is like something from a 70s nightmare um you have like the the way in which like spaces that the writer's kind of space which looks like a rejected set from 2001 a space odyssey but you have on the other hand the fact that home. alex yeah home the fact that you have alex Alex looks like uh, Alex appreciates a bit of Ludwig van and the idea that you have this contrast that runs through the film, particularly when horrible events are set to classical music as a counterpoint. And I mean, um, obviously, the, the sexual assault set to singing in the rain is the most obvious example. Um, and that, that apparently came about because uh, Cooper couldn't figure out how to shoot that scene. Apparently, he spent two days working on it and couldn't get it to work. So he asked McDowell if he would sing a song. And the only song that McDowell knew all the words to was singing in the rain. And that is apparently how it ended up in the movie. Kubrick immediately left the set and discovered that he'd have to pay $10,000 in order to have it in the movie. But apparently that was fine. Um, But like you have throughout, you have even like early on, you have that kind of sequence of sexual assault with with Billy Boy, where it's set to Rossini's uh, The Thieving Magpie, for example, as well. Um, And you have like things, I kind of, I find that contrast between the terrible things that people do and the horrible way that Kubrick sees mankind contrasted with high art or contrasted with classical music I, I find that contrast fascinating yeah I mean it it is and um I mean obviously you look at something like Reservoir Dogs for you know yeah Tarantino uses you know Steeler's wheel stuck in the middle with you um yeah. while showing you a, a very violent scene so it's it's something that yeah that films do really well it's, it's probably the only medium that does this um where um you know, is showing you something awful on screen, but enticing you in with some beautiful, beautiful music. You know, so it's it's an interesting what that can do to your to your brain. I think you know, it's um, the dissonance. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Uh, I absolutely agree. You know, and I, I think Kubrick does that better than anybody. Yeah, and as you point out, kind of pioneered it. Like I would I would argue that that for all that Tarantino complains about what part of Kubrick's anatomies were in what state. I do think that, yeah, you 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 borrowed quite a great deal uh, from Kubrick in doing that. But Andrew, as somebody who appreciates uh, Beethoven, like, what do you think of the use of him here? Well, yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm not certain, but I think I have to credit this movie for kind of getting me into it. Um, <laughs> of the things and... you could have taken away from A Clockwork Orange, I think a love of Beethoven is probably one of the good things. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, um, I can't are... imagine those little tapes um, um, have uh, very good uh, sound quality. Um, but then again, I, I, I suppose we have ones and zeros now, but that's also not great sound quality I... <laughs> in, in terms of like being um, uh, high fidelity, I guess. Um, I love the production design, like as you you mentioned there, the little tapes, the kind of the recording decks. Like one of the things that I I think somebody note that's been noted about like a Clockwork Orange is that Kubrick didn't try to imagine a future per se. He instead looked at the world as it was in 1972 and said, which parts of this do I think are going to last? Because I think that Aoife mentioned like the Chelsea Drugstore, the famous record store that was very popular in the late 60s and early 70s. They don't change a thing about that shop. You can still see the records that were on set there, on sale there when they filmed in 1971. And I kind of like, I really like that because I think it's aged really well. I think like A Clockwork Orange, when you watch it today, you know, obviously a bit of it's retro future chic, but it, it doesn't, it hasn't aged as poorly as say Logan's Run. For example, when you look at Logan's run and you go, is this what we thought the future would look like? I think A Clockwork Orange has, has like endured remarkably well because it, it chose to do that very smart thing of saying, 
let's not imagine a future from scratch. Let's look at parts of modern design that we think are futuristic and just film those. The the electronic music as well, but I think it's Walter Carlos. Oh, Wendy Wendy Carlos. She... We, we, sorry, we, we, when, Wendy Carlos. Yes, I beg your pardon. Right. Um, um, is um, is incredible. Um, the just the 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 orchestration because it, it it could be something that would be very, and I'm sure there's some people who don't who 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 don't who don't enjoy it, um and. For somebody who who's kind of a like fan of 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 Beethoven, they mightn't they might feel that that sort of orchestration would sort of butcher it. But I I I I, I do find myself enjoying it, and it goes really well with the movie, with the film. Does it create that dissonance? Does it create that kind of like dissonance that we talked about there, where it's like rendering something that is very classical and very traditional, but in a way that like at the time was contemporary through electronic music. And so you get that kind of contrast of kind of old culture, old high culture and kind of new, I don't want to call it low culture, but kind of new pop culture. And this kind of like timelessness that you get playing the two off each other. It, it is striking. Um, I really, really like it. One thing I want to actually bring up, actually, one more thing in my notes, um, the character of Alex um, and in terms of like how evil he is, one of the interesting things, and again, I'm perhaps giving the movie too much credit here or reading too much stuff into it. But one of the things that I find kind of interesting is the question of whether or not Alex is, obviously Alex is accountable for his own choices and own decisions and stuff like that. But the way in which the film perhaps suggests that he is a product of the world in which he lives and the environment in which he lives, but also is there a recurring suggestion that he's maybe been like assaulted, um, particularly say by Mr. Deltoid, the way in which Mr. Deltoid comes into his parents' room and kind of like strokes him on the bed when he's in nothing but his underwear, grabs him by the crotch. And even later on you have the priest and we point out the priest is the priest is the moral center of the film, or at least the character who gets to espouse the moral argument at the heart of the film, which is that like being good without having a choice to be good is not of any moral worth whatsoever. But even he seems to be like when he grabs him by the shoulder and he's like, look, I know about the carnal desires that strike men when they are like away from the fellowship of women. Is there an implication that Alex has maybe been abused or that like maybe the way that Alex is, is not, I don't want to say like intrinsically down to who he is, but a product of factors outside of necessarily himself or his own identity. Like is, yeah, is there... I mean, I think I think that's um, an interesting way to look at it. Um, certainly, there are no good authority figures in this film. Yeah. They're either um, sort of uh, useless, like his parents. You know, they just just don't seem to care, <laughs> or they're um, you know they're like Mr. Deltoid, or or even even the police, um, the politician, you know, the um, the warden. They're all. You know they're all horrible. So you know Alex, I do think is a product of his society, um, and definitely you know that you know the scene with Mr. Deltoid in in the in the bedroom. It's you know you know it's 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 sexual assault. Like let's call it what it is. You know and you know whether that has happened before, I you would have to presume it has. You know because he he's a very very strange character. You know it's very very odd. I think. Uh, he spits on his face at like at the end. Like, yeah, the last that's thing right. he does yeah, is yeah. to spit on, on Alex's face. And and by the way, um and again, McDow this is another story from McDowell. Apparently Kubrick being Kubrick filmed the sequence so many times that the actor playing Deltoid ran out of spit. 
And 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 McDowell was like, whew, finally, we can stop shooting the sequence. And apparently Stephen Burkov raised his hand and says, I can do it. And apparently they got another tweet. Right. Yeah, mm, Stephen Burkov. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> apparently Burkov quite enjoyed spending 27 scenes spitting in McDowell's face. Um, but no, I, I kind of do find that, that idea interesting. It's kind of interesting that Aoife mentions that there are no good authority figures in the movie and it's it's notable that like we mentioned the symmetry of the movie but like one of the more interesting kind of symmetries in the movie is like obviously you have dim and georgie going on from being like street thugs to being police officers but like the sequence where alex is being interrogated by stephen burkov suggests that like (laughs) stephen burkov is not so different a cop from the cop that Dim and Georgie become. You can imagine that if like Deltoid had not been there, they would have hauled him off into the car and kind of driven him away out to the pig trough and basically interrogated him there, which I find interesting. I find that kind of like suggests again, circularity, the idea that the whole world is, is in decline and is broken and is fundamentally not working. I find that aspect of A Clockwork Orange fascinating as well. I found it very funny, the scene with the psychologist. Like her kind of sunny disposition throughout it all, oh. and his um, excitement, his excitement at kind yeah. of like having his himself act. Yeah. Did I get it right? Did I answer? The, did I answer the questions like, right? Uh, cabbages, magpies, knickers. Uh, I want to smash it's your face. Not got a beak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to eggs. I want to smash them, and then. <laughs> But like his his like boyish enthusiasm where he's like, did I get the question right? And she's like, it's not that kind of test. But it's like you could tell he, if she had a gold star, he would really, really want it, which I kind of like as well. Again, kind of reminds you that he is a child. Like all the terrible, awful stuff that he does, he is still fundamentally a child, which is perhaps one of the more complicated uh, parts of the film. Because, you know, again, this question of like how... He he obviously he is responsible. He makes choices. He does what he chooses to do. What he does, but he's also not something that exists in a vacuum. I think, which is is kind of an interesting angle in the film. Yeah, it's it's to do with like as well, kind of um, some some of the stuff is is maybe an indictment of us as a society, like the way the way he very explicitly thinks and talks about. Um, the kind of the old kind of homeless guy kind of re- 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 represents the way maybe society treats these people. Yeah, you know. Well, I mean, the, the um, old homeless guy has this big speech at the start about law and order, men in space, and we can't have law and order on Earth. But when the when the homeless people are beating up on Alex, you have you have Alex, admittedly self servedly, but like contextualizing it as the old beaten on the young. Um. And it's, in case you don't get the metaphor for what's going on here as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it, it's a weird, watching it last night, I was struck by, it's a weirdly British movie. <laughs> you know, it's very much, um, like like you said, it, it could be a carry-on movie at times, it could be porridge at times. Um, the architecture, obviously, the, the um, I, and yes, I know it's it's all shot in Britain, but it just, it just feels like rather than an, an American film, made by an American filmmaker, it feels like a British film, you know, it's, it's, and it feels to have very British attitudes, I think, you know, um, and, you know, as soon as I saw the um, Minister for the Interior, I went, that guy's a Tory, you know, so <laughs> this, this is Britain, this is Britain today, like, you know, this is, that's, that's, you know, has, has anything changed? 
Yeah, because Burgess has talked about how, like, he chose the name Alex because, like, he didn't want to do something like Chuck because that was very American. Alex was very definitely British or Russian, uh, which is kind of what he was going for there, which I kind of like. I kind of admire that aspect of the film. Um, all right. In terms of, of other stuff, in terms of things we haven't talked about in the film, is there anything you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at people? Is it um, probably like um, the difference between himself and the Tory is that Tories don't have it to do with prisons because they give them away to private companies. That's the Clockwork Orange update. It's like we need to clear this out so we can sell it. Um, it's, yeah. uh, it. The movie actually reminded me of how unoriginal I am and how I think when I was like 22, I started essentially plagiarizing A Clockwork Orange with some novel um, about um, some, um, similarly, some sort of a psychopath, like who um, and it was re- re- revisiting kind of some, some of the um, uh, horrific things um, that's, uh, the, that he had been guilty of. And, all, and, and the whole point of the... The novel was meant to be whether whether a person um, can be kind of redeemed, um, uh, whether a person like that. Was this the point where we were both writing dueling novels and mine was about man-eating television sets? <laughs> it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, myself and Andrew as, as teenagers, very we were the coolest kids on the block. Uh, the coolest kids on the block. Um, what I will say, actually, Aoife mentioned the way in which, like, every shot of this movie looks absolutely stunning. And I think she singled out some individual shots early on. Like, the sequence where they attack the old man and they're in the tunnel with the long shadows behind them. Um, how Kubrick would actually determine how the shots would look on film, he apparently had a Polaroid camera. And he literally, when he set up a shot, he'd take a... Because po- obviously this was back in the old days when you didn't have monitors, you weren't recording on video, you weren't doing it on digital. So you'd have to shoot and then go to the editing bay, you'd have to process it, you'd have to do daily, stuff like that. But he'd, he'd take a Polaroid picture and he'd just kind of snap it and he'd go, yep, that's the look I want, which I find kind of amazing. So apparently there was a library of something like 70,000 Polaroids that he took over the course of the film to get, basically to get the, the shots that he wanted to make it look the way that he does. And it's absolutely beautiful. Um, oh, and by the way, we should mention the um, singing in the rain, um, which obviously plays over the um, plays over the end credits as well. The original version with Gene Kelly. Apparently, Gene Kelly was not best pleased with the use of singing in the rain in the film. And apparently when they were at the Academy Awards, I think the following year, um, Kelly refused to speak um, to Kubrick about his use of the... Uh, well, if you speak from it at all, because of his use of Singing in the Rain in the movie. Although apparently um, Stanley Donan, the other director in Singing in the Rain, was like, yeah, sure, Singing in the Rain will always be a classic. There's nothing this Kubrick kid can do to change that. So I'm happy to take his money. Um, <laughs> yeah. I did I did enjoy the um, the kind of title cards. and The, the, the orange and blue. Yeah. Like a modern yeah. film poster. Red. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but very striking and very memorable. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at people? Um, no, I think we've covered quite a lot. Um, I, the sex scene, I think, is very funny. The um, this speeded up sex scene. <laughs> the William Tell overture yeah. sex scene. Um, just, and, and like the sequence where he courts her in the shop and they have the very phallic ice pops. The ice pops, <laughs> yeah. The, 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 yeah. Um, the drooping one. Um, the tro- kind of like, do, do, like, do you order your ice pop like that? Do you say how erect you want your ice pop um, like, at that stall? Um, 
Should note, actually, the that sequence is, is interesting in large part because it's also an example of how Kubrick perhaps softened some of the text. Because I think Aoife uh, and Andrew, both having read the That's book, right. will, know, yeah. will know that in the book, it's a 10-year-old girl and a 12-year-old girl, and he drugs them and then assaults them, basically. And in the film, it's turned into a consensual threesome that's played as comedy and perhaps does a bit towards... <laughs> I imagine Alex in the movie would be a lot... Obviously, he does terrible, terrible things anyway, but I imagine it would be much, much harder to sell the idea that, you know, we should maybe feel some sympathy towards him at the climax if that were the case, which I find kind of interesting. In ter- like, I think, yeah. N- again, not, not to dwell too much on my issues with the film, because I, I do, we've talked too much about how I like the film, but my issue with the film is that it's stuff like that where it feels like Kubrick is, you know, I expect directors like Spielberg to put their kind of fingers on the scale and kind of like push it and lean it one way and manipulate the audience and push an audience towards feeling away. But like when I watch A Clockwork Orange, I feel like I can see Kubrick's hand on the scale just a little bit where it's like, I I don't want you to think about anything but Alex. I don't want you to think about Alex's victims when we get to this kind of moral debate that we're going to have or this moral dilemma that we're going to have. I don't want you to think about anything but Alex and the state and the relationship between Alex and the state. And that's kind of, I think, that's my big issue with A Clockwork Orange, kind of, I think, in terms of how I feel towards it or why I, why maybe I don't love it, if that makes sense. In terms of the stuff we talk about every week. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, lighten the, the mood a bit. Lighten the, yep, sorry. Yeah. The, the food, food waste, his face in the pasta. <laughs> Um, it's a great shot. I'm, it's a really great shot, and I, I like great. the drool. I always like it when you get drool. Um. <laughs> but I, I don't manage. I, I don't imagine that he made like full use of that pasta afterwards. <laughs> um, um, in terms of inappropriate smoking, um, I'm not sure. But they, they in 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 Nadsat, they would call uh, cigarettes cancers. Oh. Uh, that that was like the 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 slang slang for cigarettes, which is appropriate, I guess. Um, um, and in terms of uh, obligatory Robocop references, um, of course, it's like the it's the, a dystopia. The, yeah, yeah, and it's the government kind of uh, <laughs> um, interfering, try attempting to, I suppose, remove somebody's kind of um, free will. Uh, free, yeah, yeah, or 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 their personhood, or um. Um, yeah, yeah, their 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 agency, and I think I gave him a shout out earlier, but just a quick shout out again to David Prowse, who is is there as as Julian, remarkable in the little. Again, we talked about how male bodies are presented on the two fifty as a recurring trope. Again, very interesting. Feels like an important moment when David Prowse is a bodybuilder in those hot pants, just gets up and kind of walks and opens the door. Uh, but apparently, Prowse was told that he would never be Mister Universe. Um, despite the fact that he was the tallest contestant and the widest contestant and the weightiest contestant because he had ugly feet, which I quite like. That's that's David Prowse's observation. His feet were too ugly for him to ever be Mr. Universe. Um, and apparently we will have footage in the show notes. But at the same time that he was doing this, he was also playing Britain's homegrown superhero, the Green Cross Code Man. Uh, in public service announcements in the 70s through the 80s. And we'll include some of those in the show notes as well. Um, Very quickly, only other note is that A Clockwork Orange has had a storied history outside of uh, the film adaptation. The Royal Shakespearean Society attempted to adapt a stage musical with songs by U2 in 1990. Audiences were apparently repulsed and critics somehow felt even worse about it. Um, you too. Well, I mean, come on. Like, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark apparently was not... That's what I was wondering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at, at what point do Bono and the Ed say, you know what, this this medium just doesn't work for us? Um, 
Um, all right, then, unless there's anything else we're talking about, anything that we haven't discussed already. Um, anybody? Um, did we talk about the the controversies writing the film? Just a little bit. No, of want to touch we should actually. Off. We should actually. So, Aoife, do you want to talk a little bit about that, actually? The, the kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, so when it, when it was released, um, there were apparently some copycat crimes um, with characters dressed like characters from the film committing yeah. assault. And um, there was one one case of a, a sexual assault where the the attackers actually sung singing in the rain, uh, I believe as well. And a fourteen year old boy accused of manslaughter um, argued that a clockwork orange had inspired him. Um, yeah. So you know, so it comes down to the age old question: is it, you know, can can films inspire people to do horrible acts? And you know, it, you know, this dogs films all you know, it happened with a child's play. It happened with the Oliver Natural Born Killers. Um, and you know, can, can, you know, can people be inspired to do bad things by watching certain films? Um, and you know, my theory is is no. I mean, anybody who's going to commit an act of violence is going to commit an act of violence, no matter what they do. Um, like they, they could go and drink a glass of milk that morning and commit an act of violence. Is it because they drank a glass of milk, or is it because they're just a violent person? You know, so. Um, but it it caused um, Kubrick to withdraw the film from from the UK. And consequently, Ireland as well. I don't even know if it ever got a release in Ireland. I'm not sure if it did or not. Um, imagine running it past the local censor. Um, the local. <laughs> yeah, imagine Seamus Smith. You know, yeah, the uh, <laughs> so I think, yeah, I mean, I think be- because of the fact that it was so long unavailable, it's what sort of caught my imagination growing up. Like I, I had a poster of the um, that tunnel scene with, with the shadows on the tramp. Um, and I think that's what you know that's what sort of fired my imagination it's what caused me to read the book and it's you know it's a film that has sort of stuck with me ever since so yeah so censoring films doesn't work obviously (laughs) obviously, it it got to Eva anyway despite your best efforts mr kubrick well no i I think actually it it is something that's kind of interesting because the film is is about that to a certain extent like you have attempts to like convinced or to change Alex's behavior using cinema like he's in a seat he's watching he's a captive audience member for this and the attempt to create a Pavlovian response and I find it interesting that you have a Clockwork Orange arguably being treated in that way by media I agree with Aoife entirely actually I think that if you're going to do something like that you're going to do something like that you may take cues from something you may borrow an influence from something you may do it a particular way because of something but if you are somebody who is inclined to do something like that, I imagine you are probably always going to do that. Um, and I imagine that, you know, I would argue, and again, this is this is Darren on his soapbox, but it's probably more to do with, you know, the people around you and, and kind of the people who care for you to recognize that and stop that from happening and making sure services are available. That's probably where the issue is. Like, I, I don't think, you know, The Dark Knight Rises is to blame for somebody taking a semi-automatic weapon into a cinema. I think... You should probably look at gun control laws about how easy it is for somebody to get a hold of one of those weapons and bring them into a cinema. But again, that's that's a debate for a different time. What I will say, actually, one of the more interesting aspects of the um, of the Clockwork Orange ban, as it was, or withdrawal from circulation, was that apparently the movie was massively successful. It was released in 1972. And in fact, I believe carrying on into 1973 in the UK, it was the third most financially successful movie of the year. I believe it was behind The Godfather. Um, and I'm just going to check what the other one was there. We're going to go very quickly to The Fact Machine. 
Um, it was The Godfather and Live and Let Die were the two highest grossing movies of 1973. But in its second year of a release, A Clockwork Orange was the third highest grossing movie at the UK box office. By the time Kubrick asked for it to be withdrawn, it had played everywhere already. It had basically been out of circulation. People didn't realize that it had been, again, banned in inverted commas until 1979, when the National Film Theatre tried to arrange a screening and Warner Brothers said no, uh, which I kind of love as well. Um, like, that, that's the interesting aspect of the ban. Nobody realized that it was banned for like years after it had been taken out of circulation, which I find kind of like for all that we talk about the scandal around it, which, which is interesting as well. All right, then I think that about wraps it up, unless there's anything else we want to talk about, anything we haven't discussed already, anything jumping out at people. With that in mind, then, what I'll normally do is we will ask our guests to recommend something for listeners. It could be something related to the movie we just watched, something completely unrelated, just something that is bringing you joy at the moment. And to give Aoife a chance to think about that, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, I'll, I'll recommend our own... Um, well, no, no. It, 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 it's, it's a different book, but it, the, watching this movie reminded me of it was uh, the, the, the Butcher Boy. And of course, uh, not not just the book, but also the Neil Jordan uh, film adaptation, um, uh, f- uh, film adaptation of the, uh, the Butcher Boy by Patrick McCabe. Um, I'd recommend. It's extremely funny. Um, and my my uh, I remember my mother when she was studying literature, um, them reading it, and people finding that they 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 thought it was horrific. And couldn't understand how she thought it was funny, and she was like, "You have to read it in a Clonus accent." <laughs> you know? <laughs> that, that, that she had worked in a bank in Clonus and and kind of um, got the, the kind of humor of it. But um, and in terms of Malcolm McDowell, um, I think we've argued about this down, but I have like I... generations. I think uh, the, the uh, Star, Star Trek, Trek generations, six, yeah, Star Trek and, seven, yeah, yeah, Star exactly. And uh, and generations um, are 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 the best two consecutive uh, uh, Star Trek movies. I think I think you 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 might start with generations and go in no in, no uh, no to first contact. I would I would say Star Trek Six is the best Star Trek movie. Um, maybe Star Trek First Contact is the second best Star Trek movie. Um, but yeah, I, I we agree on we agree on the undiscovered country. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> the future, Andrew. Yeah, it's funny actually because most people say Wrath of Khan. Anyway, Star Trek, uh, Star Trek Generation. Every Shakespearean scholar is crying into their hands now. The undiscovered country, <laughs> the future. Yeah, but yeah, in terms of, I I think it's one one of one of the best kind of Malcolm McDowell uh, performances. Um, and I I yeah I I love it. I think it's great. You're not going to recommend Caligula, no? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <girl. laughs> <laughs> oh we forgot we forgot to mention that by the way but again we talked about like the the idea of alex being influenced by forces outside of himself kubrick talked about how much of the images inside alex's head are taken from other movies obviously like 10,000 bc the raquel welch movie plays for example and that sequence of a woman hanging is actually recreated from a black and white movie um but the sequence where alex is whipping christ um Apparently, I didn't pick this up until I read an interview with McDowell and Kubrick, but apparently he insisted that McDowell do it in an American accent in order to make it sound like it was an American, like, kind of period piece or kind of like Roman swords and sandals epic. Um, So I do kind of, I kind of like the idea of those sequences of Alex's dreams in A Clockwork Orange being, as Aoife suggested, like a testing ground for Caligula. Like, that's priming. Is Caligula the true sequel to A Clockwork Orange? Um, but sorry, Aoife, what would you recommend for listeners? 
Um, I'm going to recommend a couple of things. That's okay. Um, both both are on Netflix. So the first one is um, a Korean um, sort of historical epic called Kingdom. Oh, this is the TV show, is it? Yeah, this is the a TV show. It's a it's sort of a historical epic with zombies. I've only just started watching it, and I think it's going to be great from what I've seen so far. But the other thing, I mean, we're in the middle of lockdown at the moment and, you know, it can be hard to concentrate and it's hard to commit to something, you know, as hard to commit to a movie or even hard to commit to a long series. But there's a wonderful sort of comedy show called Superstore. And each episode is is 20 minutes long and it's set in a sort of a, a Walmart type store. Is this the one with America Ferreira? Yeah, 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 that's the one. And it's very, very funny. It, it, it's um, it's. Each episode is it's, it's nice and short, so you can just watch one or two episodes, and I'm enjoying it enormously. It's it's keeping me going during lockdown, and it's one of the best sort of funniest comedy things I've seen in quite a while. Highly recommend it. In terms of recommendations for myself, I mentioned already, but Terry Gilliam's Brazil um, is is phenomenal. It's one of my favorite films um, ever. Um, it's in my top like four or five. And I, when I was watching this last night, I was thinking, you know, sure, this is nice. Sure, it's more visually distinctive. Sure, it's hugely influential. Sure, Kubrick is one of the greatest film directors who ever lived, but it's not Brazil. Um, but yeah, no, so I would wholeheartedly recommend Brazil. And the other thing I'm enjoying at the moment because this is vaguely science fiction themed, The Expanse on Amazon. Um, I binged through all five seasons of it for a project for work uh well i say work for writing um and and i really really enjoyed it it's really good so if you liked kind of um battlestar galactica or if you liked say star trek deep space nine um it's very much along those lines of science fiction show for the moment it's well worth seeking out the first three episodes are quite tough because it has to do all that world building stuff but once it gets through that it, it's plain sailing and it also features a whole bunch of made-up jargon so it's very similar to a clockwork orange in that respect um it stars what like I loved the show. I really liked the first two and a half seasons of the show. And then David Strathurn shows up as a space pirate, oh. as a, no, as a space pirate with a horseshoe mustache and a Creole accent. <laughs> and I was like, I thought I loved this show, but now, now I love this show. I love David Strathurn. Yeah. It's all you had to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you had me at horseshoe mustache. Yeah. All right, then. Um, so if, if people are looking to find a bit more Eva Martin on their lives, where can they find you? Watch up to. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, um, at Aoife, A-O-I-F-E-M-R-T-N. And I also have a regular column with the journal, thejournal.ie. So you can find me there. Perfect. We'll include both those in the show notes. Nice. Um, perfect. And you can follow the podcast at SoundCloud, at Stitcher, wherever good podcasts are available to listen. Um, and we're also on Twitter as well. Uh, we don't do that as often as we should, admittedly, but we'll we'll try to get better. Um, and in terms of what we're doing next... By the way, Darren is great. <laughs> like, I know I've noticed. I, I, I've, ma- I, I've, I've made a joke earlier on the podcast. It occurs to me that people mightn't get the irony. <laughs> the Darren does everything for, for this podcast. Um, so it's not us it's him um, <laughs> um, actually sorry un- un- unless when it's bad then it's me <laughs> um, um, but no so yes um, that we are available online as well and next week um, the wonderful Andy Hazel um, who joined us for our Twin Peaks uh, discussion three years ago now I think it's about three years ago how does time even work anymore who joined us to talk about Mary and Max um, he'll be joining us to talk about Christopher Nolan's Interstellar Ooh. very very much looking forward to that Right, take it easy, guys. Join us next week. Thank you so much, Eva. Really enjoyed that. Actually, thank that you. Was, Thanks for having me. Really thank you, Eva. Yeah, in, in, enjoyed that. Great getting to see you. Likewise. Perfect. Yeah. No, thanks. Enjoyed that. All right. Perfect. All right. Talk to you later. Okay, guys. Take care. Thanks, folks. Bye. Have a great evening.
dancing and singing in 